Good morning, Oak Ridge. All right, hands up how many people have a cough or a cold. Notice I put my hand up. And when I have a cough or a cold, there's one thing that I really, really appreciate, and that is sympathy. So if everybody would just say, aw, together, then I'd feel a lot better. Let's say it together. Aw. And that's for everybody with a cough or a cold. So you're part of that sympathy already, okay? Nothing wrong with a little sympathy. The other day, someone asked me if I did any fishing. And I answered, I used to be a fisherman, but I got spoiled. When working in Zambia as a missionary many years ago, I I didn't think much of fishing, even though the Zambezi River right at our door had had great uh, fishing. I went to Chivuma Hospital to the north of us for medical rounds one day, and uh, Ben Eiler was there, and he's one of the missionaries at Chivuma, as a little boat, and he was a fisherman. And uh, he would go out once in a while and, and spend some time on the river and fish for tiger fish. Some of the best game fishing in the world is with Zambezi River tiger fish. So one day when I was up there for rounds, he said, Jim, why don't you come out with me and I'll teach you how to catch tiger fish. So I was up for it. I went out with Ben Eiler. I quickly found out that he was a master fisherman. He had learned when the fish bite. He had learned where they bite. Uh, He had learned the different lures that would attract them. And... uh, we would troll with the boat, and he knew exactly the speed to go, and he just knew it all. And in a few hours, he was imparting to me the wisdom of life for a fisherman, how to understand and catch fish. So that day, I actually caught one little tiger fish, and it wasn't the fish that was hooked, it was me, because I became an avid fisherman. That day, uh, after hearing from Ben, I was convinced that this was the way to spend wonderful moments on the river. So along with my friend Ron, we had many, many happy hours of fishing, and we became good at it. Here's a photo of one of our best days. By the way, Ron's on the left, and I'm on the right. That guy behind the mustache is actually me, complete with brown shoes and black socks, And we caught 150 pounds of fish that day. So I'm sorry. A rock bass does not excite me anymore. We're studying in the Gospel of Mark, and we're looking at the book as lessons in discipleship. And what does it mean to be a disciple? A disciple is one who follows a teacher to learn things, just as I follow Ben Eiler to learn how to catch tiger fish. From Pastor Josiah, we've already learned two lessons on discipleship in Mark chapter 1. First of all, a very sober note. The job, although rewarding, has consequences. And we, we saw the consequence that John the Baptist had, and that is he was imprisoned and finally executed. And Jesus, who came to be a, 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 a a fisherman of men, he came and was executed. 
And so God's people are going to struggle. They're going to suffer if they're prepared to follow Jesus Christ in his steps. The next lesson is this. A disciple needs to be selfless, not selfish. The example is Peter's mother-in-law, who was, after Jesus healed her of a fever, busy serving the disciples. She got up and she, with the strength that she had, she served others. And the key to discipleship is learning how to be like Jesus and to serve and to be a fisher of men. So we have seen that Jesus called his message the gospel, which means the good news, and that's found in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1, and uh, verse 14 and 15, it says, At once, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So this is what we're called to declare. This is what Jesus declared. He came not only to help people in their need, he came to bless people with the truth. And the truth, the good news is this. God is a savior. And he has sent his son to be our savior. And Jesus Christ was properly representing himself and calling people to repent of their sins and to believe the good news. What does repent mean? It means turn from your old ways. Turn from the way you've been thinking about God. And choose to believe in the Lord. Choose to believe in Jesus and ask him to be your savior. Receive him. And that is the gospel. Now, Jesus was declaring these things, but he didn't intend to declare these things by himself. So we see him very quickly gathering disciples to himself. It says... In verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At at once they left their nets and they followed him. Closely tied with discipleship is evangelism. Evangelism simply means Declaring the good news. These two activities are equal. They, they cannot be divided. If you're going to be a good disciple of Jesus Christ, you are going to be excited about the gospel and you're going to share the gospel. This is what the Spirit inside of every Christian wants him or her to do. Jesus declared it. Every day he was preaching the gospel and declaring the good news. And we are to follow him in that exercise of sharing the gospel with others. So what does it mean to be a a fisher of men? It means to have your life so attractive that people see you as different, that people see you as having been with Jesus, that people see something in you that they want because deep down in the heart of every person, there's a God consciousness and people are seeking for the truth. They're seeking for reality, for people who actually uh, live like Jesus and declare their faith in Jesus. 
So we seek to attract others to Jesus, just as a fisherman might seek to attract fish. If we're going to be successful, we need to learn a few more lessons. Just like I had to learn from Ben Eiler how to fish tiger fish, we need to learn a few more lessons. And we find three stories in Mark chapter 2 and into chapter 3, each with a big lesson in discipleship and fishing for men. Now, the disciples, through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, weren't doing fishing yet, it seems. They were just observing the master. When I was out on the boat with Ben Eiler, I was watching how he did it. And so, in these chapters, the disciples are learning from the master. And Jesus is the one who is doing the fishing. So, let's read Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12, story number 1. And it has to do with the healing of a paralyzed man. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking. Now that is a sobering thought. Jesus knows what you're thinking. He knew what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. They praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let's go back to a little key verse, and it's verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. First of all, people were amazed that he said such an audacious statement, and the teachers of the law couldn't believe it because they thought it was blasphemy. No one can forgive sins but God alone. But Jesus was declaring that he is the Savior of men. He is also the Son of God. And because of his work that he was going to do on the cross, he has the authority to forgive sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet these teachers of the law were doubting that Jesus had such authority, and so he said, all right, which is easier, to heal the man or to say your sins are forgiven? That's a question. It's probably easier to prove uh, yourself by raising the man because that's a tangible evidence of something that is unseen and spiritual, the idea of forgiving sins. So Jesus said, so I'm going to give you something tangible. I'm going to give you some definite proof here. And he told the man to get up and walk, and immediately the man got up and walked. 
And it was amazing. Jesus is the forgiver. But let's go back to the start of the story because verse 5 begs us to look back also at how this paralytic got there in the first place. Four men who probably had heard the word of Jesus before because Jesus had preached in Capernaum before and in the precincts around Capernaum. And perhaps they had that faith in Jesus Christ. And they knew that he would do good for their brother or their, their, their friend who was sick. And I suspect that this man was very sick because there was an urgency to what they did. And I think to myself as a doctor, what was wrong with this man? When I was a kid, there was great fear of a disease called polio. We don't fear it anymore because we have a vaccine. But polio is an ascending paralysis that can cause death. If it gets up to your lungs and and it paralyzes the muscles to to your, your chest wall and to your lungs, you don't breathe anymore and you die. I suspect that this man had some kind of a virus that quickly took him and he was getting worse by the moment. And they said, we don't have a minute to spare. So they took him with his mat and they carried him. We don't know how how far it was, but uh, I suspect it was a distance because Capernaum had already been cleared of many sick people. Jesus healed in Capernaum a few days before. So they arrive at the house. They're sweaty. They're out of breath. They're thinking, we finally arrived. And they see a crowd, not only in the house, but all the way around the door. And they say, we can't get in. And our friend is in need. What are we going to do? And one of them had a bright idea. Let's go up to the roof. We'll get closer there. And then they started to take apart the roof. Now, roofs in those days were a combination of of, uh, mud, thick mud, and straw. And that formed the, the enclosure of the roof. And so they were tearing at the mud and they were tearing at the straw to open up an opening so that they could get down to where Jesus was. Can you imagine what was going on below? Jesus is right under them, and all these people are sitting there crowded. And clods of mud and bunches of straw floating down from the ceiling, and and not to mention the racket. Quite a disturbance. It's interesting that Jesus did not interrupt these men as they were doing their work. And down comes the man on the mat in front of Jesus, in front of those assembled. And immediately, Jesus addresses the man, and he says in chapter uh, 2, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. Now, I'm going I'm to phrase it with a different emphasis. When Jesus saw their faith, their faith, not just the faith of the paralytic, who I'm sure had faith, because faith is what is needed in order to receive a blessing from the Lord, receive his salvation. Got to choose to believe. The paralytic had faith. Jesus is not just commending the paralytic for his faith. He's commending the men up on the roof. And he looks up, Jesus looks up, and he sees the faces of these men sweaty and soiled with the mud that they've been clawing through. But they were smiling faces because they just heard Jesus' words receiving them. And the disciples saw it the commendation that Jesus gave to these men for their faith. I submit to you that this was a big lesson in discipleship. 
Jesus was commending the diligence of four men who had helped somebody who needed to come to Jesus. Now, that's what Fishers of Men is all about. It's all about having diligence and deciding you're going to, deciding you're going to do the work of sharing Jesus. And it is work. It takes us out of our comfort zone. It causes some distress in our souls because we're going to say something that is perhaps unfamiliar to the people around us. Our activities are going to be different from the activities of the world. They might laugh at us. They might scoff. They might not take us seriously. But what do we do? Well, Jesus declared his gospel in the face of opposition. And we are called to do the exact same thing. It it requires diligence. And these men were diligent. They carried that that, uh, man uh, to the house where Jesus was. And then after that, when they couldn't get in, they actually tore apart a roof in order to get him to Jesus. Now, some of you might say, Jim, I, I can't carry a paralyzed man. I can't even hardly carry myself these days. What can I do? I can't tear apart a roof, and I've never torn apart a roof myself. But uh, we don't have to do those things. I was uh, privy to a, 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 a a teaching that Dave Overholt gave to my son, or he attends church in Hamilton. And Dave Overholt entitled his sermon, 10% More. 10%. Maybe you can't carry somebody miles to get to Jesus. Maybe you can't tear apart a roof. But perhaps you can give 10% more diligence today to share the gospel with somebody. Isn't that achievable? 10% more friendly. 10, 10% more kind. 10% more prayerful. 10% more caring of that person who needs to hear about Jesus. 10% more bold. I think we can aim at 10%, and the Lord will bless us as he blessed these men. Story number two. And it's... In Mark chapter 2, 13 to 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you got to put the disdain in that statement. This was a disdainful question. Why on earth would he be there eating with tax collectors and sinners? 
On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is not just a fisherman. He's a physician. And he refers to it in this verse. He doesn't just come to catch people with the gospel and to arrest them by his mercy and grace. He comes to heal. And that healing is upon all. Jesus did not ignore the people in high positions. He ate at their houses too. But time came for him to eat at the house of somebody who was regarded as of ill repute, and he ate there as well. This is the story of Jesus' grace. This is the story of Jesus healing the souls of all men. And he is declaring the gospel when he says this, because, you see, there's two things that makes us equals. You know what the two things are that make you and I equals in this, in this uh, room? Two things. One, we're equally sinners. Equally sinners. Because the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all got the disease. And we all need forgiveness. And that one thing makes us equals. Now, the Pharisees took great exception to that because they thought, we're above that. We're, we're not as bad as these people are. Tax collectors were regarded as the scum of the earth because it was well known that some of the tax collectors, maybe not all of them, were cheaters. There was a quota system in collecting the, the taxes. The Roman government hired some of the local people to be tax collectors and, and said, you have to produce this much money for, for your area. And so they had to collect a certain amount, but beyond that, they were free to make a living from it. And so some of them charged egregious amounts of money, extortionist amounts of money, on the people. And the people knew that they were getting rich off of them. So tax collectors were the lowest of the low. Not all of them. We don't know what was in Matthew's heart. But we do know this. Jesus came to him one day and said, I want you to follow me, be my disciple. And the people were aghast. And not only that, but Matthew called all the tax collectors in the area and he sat them down for a dinner and there were other unsavory people that were there as well. And he invited Jesus to the dinner. And Jesus went. Jesus went. There's another thing that makes us equals, besides our sin, and that is we are equally loved by God. Two things make us equals, our sin and God's love for us. Because the Bible says, it says in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. God has a great love for you and a value for you, and he's not willing for any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants every single one of us in heaven with him someday. And he sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. Nobody is excluded from that. 
So what is Jesus saying here? You see, if you're going to be a disciple, you need to see everybody as an equal. There is to be no pride and there's to be no prejudice. These things are odious in the sight of God. No pride of place. No pride of nationality. No, no pride of race. No demeaning of somebody else who comes from another culture. Everyone is to be regarded as an equal. Even those who seemingly are caught up in an ungodly lifestyle, Jesus sees the, 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 the soul for whom Christ died, and he loves that person. These people, these Pharisees, were guilty of the sin of pride of religion. And they believed that because of their observances, they were above the, the tax collectors and sinners, would never sit with them, would never fraternize with them. Jesus saw them as equals. Lesson number two. If you're going to be a good fisherman, don't practice prejudice. Get it cleansed out of your mind and out of your heart if you've got it in your heart. Because it'll kill the message of the gospel. Lesson number two. Lesson number three starts, actually, there's a little uh, bit extra here from 18 to 23. If you care to read it, it's actually preparatory for what is going to go on in ver- at verse 23. So let's start reading at verse 23. Lesson number three. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And right there, Jesus declared another thing about what he was all about. He says, I'm a fisher of men. I'm a physician of souls. And also, I'm the Lord of life. I'm the Lord of love. Because he didn't just say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He said, I am the Lord even of the Sabbath, which means I'm the Lord of everything else. I'm the Lord of everything, including the Sabbath. That's what he said. Jesus is declaring who he is. We have a great Savior. Amen? Amen? Amen. We have a great Savior. Jesus was declaring, I'm the Lord of all. Now, they had a tradition. And the tradition was given to them by a principle of God. One of the commandments says, observe the the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And that was given because God wanted to bless man. All of God's commandments are are not with a view to curses, but with a view to bless us. He wants us to be right. He wants us to be good. So the Sabbath, it was a good thing for man. What What it did was put the principle of rest right into the continuum of human life. You rest. You work. But you rest. Now, I have often ignored this. 
I've shared with you before that I am a worker bee. I like to work. I actually like to work. I'm afraid of retiring. Because I like to work. I find it most difficult to rest. And so I struggle to keep the Sabbath. Many people love the Sabbath because they love to rest. And good for you, because rest is a great thing that God has given us. But it's possible to take a principle like the Sabbath and make it the most important thing. It's not the Lord of the Sabbath we're looking at. It's not God that we're giving thanks to. Let's keep that Sabbath and let's keep it with a, with a commitment that just will know no ends. We're, we're, we're going to make laws. We're going to make principles that will, that will uh, make the Sabbath to be absolutely perfectly kept. We're going to do no work on the Sabbath. And that means, if it means lighting a candle for, for light, we're going to light it on the, the day before the Sabbath. And we're going to have the candle big enough so that it burns all the way through. We're not even going to light a candle. I don't know if some of you have ever gotten on a, an elevator dedicated to the Sabbath. Have, have you ever gotten on an elevator dedicated to the Sabbath? It stops at every floor so the, the pious Jews do not have to press the button. Stops at every floor. We got on, a, on, on a, an elevator. It took us a half an hour to get up to the 30th floor. That's to, just to avoid work. Now, those are traditions. And you know what? We smile at them, you see, but we have our own traditions. We have things that we would like to do or not to do, and, and we observe them. And we observe them with a sense of seeking to please God. Traditions are not wrong. Now, the Pharisees believed that the disciples were out there feeding themselves and picking grain on the Sabbath, and they were breaking the law of rest. But Jesus said, that law is not the greatest law. The greatest law is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you guys were seeing the need of that of those men out there, they were hungry and they were eat, they were feeding themselves. To feed a hungry person takes precedence over any command to rest on the Sabbath. And then he goes into chapter three and, and verse one. And it says, another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to, ev or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and the hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Once again, there's trouble, because these people who are Sabbath keepers find a fault. And actually, Jesus knew they were going to find the fault, because he knows what's in man's hearts. And he entered into the conflict he invited the conflict. Because the crippled man was there in the audience on the Sabbath, 
And he said to the man, come front and center. In other words, we're not going to do this in a corner. We're going to do this in front of the whole assembly. Come and stand front and center. Here's the man with, with the, the uh, uh, paralyzed hand. And Jesus looked around and he said, now, you, you, teachers of the law, which is the best thing to do? To heal or destroy, to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And they wouldn't reply. Because you know why? They could give no good answer. There's no good answer. No good answer. We know, we know that doctors take care of us on the Sabbath. We know, and we applaud the fact that, that people who take care of us on the roads are out there on the Sabbath, right? To, to guard our, our safety and to make sure that, that uh, the, the world is kept safe. There are things that we, that we allow, and these Jews knew that. The, the teachers of the law knew that, you see. But they were struggling because they were putting tradition ahead of love. And Jesus doesn't. He said, listen, if you love this man, if you love this crippled man, you would rejoice in what I'm going to do. But they weren't. They were refusing. Why? Because, you know what? It's against our custom. It's against our tradition. We're not going to allow it. And Jesus did it anyway. Lesson number three. Let no tradition stop us from being good fishermen for Jesus. No tradition. No tradition. We all have our traditions. Oh, it's not the way we do it. It's not the way we do it. We're going we're gonna, to uh, just make sure that if somebody comes to Oak Ridge, that they're going to dress a certain way, they're going to walk a certain way, and they're going to talk a certain way, and they've got to be done with, the, with, with these habits and customs. They've got to adapt to our habits and customs. I'm so thankful Oak Ridge is not like that. Aren't you thankful? And if you see that we're observing a tradition to the, and it's stumbling you, and you're saying, well, I can't, I can't find out that... Jesus in that, and, and, and it's causing me trouble. Tell us, because you know what? We'd like to deal with that. Because we don't want anything to keep you from coming to Jesus. It's not about how you do things in life, even though traditions are good. It's not the best thing. The best thing is this. Get in touch with the love of Jesus. Find the Savior. And we don't want anything, anything, any tradition to stop you from seeing Christ and his love and coming to Jesus Christ. That's lesson number three. Love is more important than tradition. So what have we got here? If you're going to be a good fisherman, be diligent like those four men. It takes work. Even if you have to aim at 10%, that's going to be great. 10% more, more devotion to, to, to name the name of Jesus. I talked with one of our dear sisters today who was in a support group at the, at the hospital. And, and, and uh, uh, the, uh, the question was asked by the convener of the group, what do you do for stress relief? 
thank the Lord that dear Margaret said, I pray and I read the word of God. Ten percent. She could have remained silent. She didn't know what the response was going to be, you see. But that's speaking up for Jesus. I think we've got to do much more of that these days because the time is short. 10%. Just speak up for Jesus. Just a word. You see somebody in trouble, you can say, you know what? God loves you and Jesus loves you and I'm going to pray for you. What's the harm? And you don't know the untold blessings that can come from that. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you right now. Do it. See, that's speaking up for Jesus. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, no pride, no prejudice. We're all equals before God. The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian has experienced the grace. And those other folks haven't experienced the grace yet. That's all the difference, because God loves them like he loves us, and, and we know we're sinners just like them. We've got, we've got to confess our sins every day. I hope you do, and I need to, to as well. We need to be equals before God. The way to see other people is this. See them as Christians if they are confessing the name of Christ, and everybody else, see them as potential Christians, because they're just about to get saved. That's the way to, to be optimistic as a, as a fisherman. You know, I'm going to catch that fish. See them as about to get saved. I am going to minister to that person because he's either a Christian or he's a potential Christian. She's either a Christian or a potential Christian. I'm going to minister to them. That's how we regard equality. The last thing is this. Let no tradition, let no custom of race, let no... Uh, 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 thing that we perhaps treasure and are free to keep. Let no tradition stop you from being a good follower of Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel with others. Because at the end of the day, it's not about how much we keep the little points of law that, that are traditional. It's how we love for Jesus' sake. May the Lord help us to be good fishers of men. May the Lord bless us as we seek to do this work for Jesus. I'm going to ask the the uh, musicians to come forward. I'm just going to commit us to the Lord in prayer.